0: This is ESG Decoded, the podcast powered by Climco to provide relevant actionable updates related to business innovation and sustainability. Join Caitlin Allen and Amanda Shea of Climco for thoughtful, nuanced conversations with industry leaders that explore the complexities, the risks, and the opportunities connected to all things ESG. I'm Yvonne Harris, a consultant and a co-host and I will be collaborating with Caitlin and Amanda for the discussions that we will present on this podcast. Put simply, ESG is everything that's not on your balance sheet. This leaves room for misunderstanding, oversimplification, and the tendency towards one-size-fits-all perspectives. None of that will happen on this podcast. Enjoy this episode.
1: Hi everyone, welcome back to ESG Decoded. I'm your host, Caitlin Allen. And today, I am so excited to welcome Angie Martin to the podcast. Angie is Senior Vice President at Heritage Environmental Services, overseeing national emergency response, waste allocation, sustainability, and customer training efforts. Mrs. Martin is currently the Vice President of the Spill Control Association of America, the President of the Pesticide Stewardship Alliance, represents Heritage on the Environmental Technology Council, and is a member of the Purdue University Environmental and Ecological Engineering External Advisory Council. She is a busy woman. (laughs) We are very lucky to have her here today. Angie has participated in many national scale emergency response efforts and leads Heritage's rapid response team. Angie frequently speaks on emerging regulatory trends and challenges, including sustainability, PFAS, and various RCRA-related topics. Angie, thank you so much for being here.
2: Hi, thank you, Caitlin. I've been looking forward to speaking with you all week.
1: I have too. And I think we should probably tell the audience a little bit. There's many ties here. Heritage Environmental Services is a client of Climco's ESG advisory team, and their owner, Heritage Group, is also an investor in Climco. So there's a couple of ways that we're connected. And Angie and I personally both share a passion for waste and all things related to waste. So we're really excited to be here. I also forgot to mention that she's a registered professional engineer in multiple states. So that gives folks a little insight into your background as an engineer. And for a fun question just to start, I understand that you come from a family full of engineers. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little
2: bit about that. So my father wasn't able to finish college. He was a draftsman, so he always came home and talked about the civil engineer he worked for at work. My husband is a mechanical engineer who went to rose Holman, uh, which is a smaller uh, university, but always called out in USA Today every year. And his father, also a mechanical engineer from rose Holman. Our older daughter, Bethany, is a civil engineer like me, but she went to rose Holman and she's also a professional engineer. And our younger daughter went to Purdue, boiler up, and uh, she's a mechanical engineer. So our children took our majors, switched our colleges, and uh, we couldn't be a more square family than we are. We we talk about like tolerances at dinner, and uh, we all are perfectionists on how things are. But everybody's a perfectionist in their own way. So growing up in that house was kind of fun. But but yeah, we managed to grow uh, to to rear. Two female engineers in our house. So, how cool is that?
1: Congratulations. That's amazing. That's really amazing. I can imagine planning family vacations. Like, who gets (laughs) to dominate the spreadsheet? (laughs) So, (laughs) can you tell I'm married to one? (laughs) Yes.
2: So, one of my favorite stories is we were driving, we love to go to Sandusky, Ohio to Cedar Point, which is a roller coaster place. And uh, we were on the way, and we have one of my daughter's friends with us and we're driving the big RV, you know, and the girls are anxious to get where we're going. And the friend says, how far are we away? Or how long is it going to be? And my husband says, we're 100 miles away. And she says, oh great, we'll be there in an hour. And we're all all the engineers in the family are like, this RV doesn't go 100 miles an hour unless maybe you drive it off a cliff. But, you know, math comes uh, naturally for us. We may not be able to sing or dance. Actually, that's not true. Uh, another, one other fun fact, my daughter, who's the uh, lieutenant in the Navy, she's also a competitive ballroom dancer. So, Oh,
1: my God, how fun. Isn't that
2: cool? Yeah. Oh, that's true. Really so I have a, one daughter's a professional engineer and the other one's a competitive ballroom dancer. So how cool is that?
1: I think uh, holidays at your house sound like they would be very entertaining. <laughs>
2: Well, And you had a wonderful son-in-law and a beautiful granddaughter, and we have the perfect holiday at our house.
1: Oh, so sweet! That's wonderful. Well, um, I that was just such a great way to start. And you know, having being a, a female engineer and having raised two, though so I am assume that you're passionate about STEM, women, and getting uh, science, technology, engineering, and math out to be available to everyone.
2: I actually am very passionate about STEM for females um, for a few reasons. Uh, one, we've hired, I have personally hired several female engineers over the years and had just really good luck with them. But my my passion is talking to younger uh, ladies, younger girls, those young ladies who like math and science when they're second, third, fourth, fifth grade. Sometimes they lose interest because maybe they think it's not cool or they want to think about other things. Um, If we lose them in that age range, it's really hard for them to recover to get the math they need. They could do it. It's just harder. So you really kind of need to get to a certain level of math before you finish high school in order to be efficient to get through engineering college. You can get through engineering with less math. It's just there's so much required. So I'm passionate about getting to those fifth and sixth grade girls and showing them how exciting STEM can be so that when they get to that end of high school, they have the choices to jump right into an engineering degree if that's what they choose. So that's my that's what I preach all the time is is keep those girls interested in in math and science if they want to be, if that's their thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you mentioned exciting careers, and I think you've had an incredibly exciting career. I think it's a nice segue to talk a little bit about emergency response and that sector if we want to start there. Um, and I'll just preface it with uh, reminding our audience that emergency response and critical incident management are really important topics for a lot of our clients and for uh, particularly industrial sectors, energy sector, etc. And so they're on the ESG matrix of what's material to a company, emergency response and criti- critical incident management are often high on that matrix. So let's start with that.
2: Certainly, so um, I got my start in emergency response, actually very young, I was still in college, and I was a cooperative education student at Purdue and working at Heritage at the same time. So I started at Heritage in my teens, late teens, but in my teens. And toward the end of my cooperative education experience, there was a major explosion and fire in Cincinnati, Ohio and uh, we're in indianapolis so we brought people in from all over the country but mostly you know our indianapolis st louis uh, louisville offices cincinnati office and i was able to participate in that emergency response and that's where i got the fire and started and fell in love with emergency response so it's important to t- think about emergency response though because uh, we talked about this before but first responders are those the firefighters the police officers and they're going to come in If there's something on fire, they're going to put the fire out. If there's a traffic accident, they're going to control the situation. But we as a country, and we did decide for sure when we passed the OPA, the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 after the Exxon Valdez, we decided as a country that the further on emergency response, the containment of oil spills and such, would be a privatized situation within the United States. So the Coast Guard does have spill response equipment. The Navy has a little spill response equipment. But most of that secondary response, that second wave, is handled in this country by either the responsible parties themselves or more likely their contracted private emergency response networks. So I got the fire <laughs> for emergency response responding to that incident. Good um, Love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Actually, I was down, we, we were down there from, I don't know, July to January of the next year, stabilizing that site, cleaning it up. So that's not something the firefighters are going to do, right? They're going to go in, they're going to fight the fire. You want them back in the firehouse for the next fire. So that's that's where the emergency response is. So from there, you mentioned I participated in a large spill in the Gulf of Mexico back in 2010. We also got to respond to Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy, depending upon who you ask. That was kind of an interesting emergency response. Um, and, and this will lead me to that toxic things that I wanna talk about. So when you have a hurricane or superstorm or whatever, the first thing you have to do is clear the streets so people can get back to their homes, get their power turned on. Well, what happens during a hurricane or superstorm is there's a lot of wind. There's um, sometimes the floodwaters come in. You end up with debris in the road. And the first thing that has to happen is you've got to get in, get the sand out of the road, get the trees off the road so that you get the trucks in to so get the power back so you get you back to their homes. When homes are destroyed, a lot of times that material is taken to what we call C&D landfills. And that's not people who got bad grades in high school. That's construction and demolition landfills. And those are perfect for bricks and mortar. They're not perfect for the household hazardous waste that might be in people's homes. Um, during those hurricanes. So what we did during Superstorm Sandy was, we literally drove down the road with our box fans and hand-packed all of the hazardous chemicals that people had in their homes so that they would not end up in the C&D landfills because if they were, that would be a direct line to drinking water for those hazardous chemicals.
1: Wow, so it's something that not everyone thinks about every day, right? And as someone that's been through many, many hurricanes in Houston, and, you know, the trash piles are on the road for weeks, sometimes even longer, depending on what area you're in. And I hadn't really thought about the, you know, the thought of you guys hand packing going down through every one of those piles and taking out hazardous items is, um, it's really impactful as an image. Um, and I, I think it kind of leads to this other question, right, is that there, a lot of waste, everyone says, oh, you know incineration, that's not good for the environment. It causes greenhouse gas emissions, but certain things can't go to the landfill or shouldn't, so they don't contaminate the environment, contaminate our water, etc. As a waste company, how do you kind of manage that trade-off?
2: So there are things that we have decided as a country are hazardous waste, and that falls under, you said RCRA, uh, Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. We call it RICRA. Uh, if you're really excited, you can call it Roar. One of our friends calls it BRICRA, but BRICRA is um, the hazardous waste. It's the act. It came out in 1976, which was, unfortunately, I, was in high, I think I was in uh, kindergarten. But anyway, that law tells us what's hazardous waste and what's not hazardous waste. As EPA developed and wrote those hazardous waste regulations, they decided of those hazardous wastes, how those wastes should be treated. And those are called the land disposal restriction regulations, or some people call that land ban. I don't like that term or LDR. The land disposal restrictions picked the best demonstrated available technologies for each type of waste. Now, I'm going to lump the waste into very broad categories for our discussions. There are things that have physical hazards, like they're flammable, they're explosive, or they have a high or a low pH. Those are easy. Then you have the things that have toxins in them. So, your toxins could be something that's inorganic, like lead, mercury, cyanide, And then you have the toxins that are organic. And those are those complex, long-chain type chemicals. So in general terms, the best way to treat something that's got cyanide in it, which is a carbon-nitrogen bond, you break the bond. And you break that bond by putting some kind of energy in there. You might oxidize it. You might heat it up. There's different things you can do. For the heavy metals, the best thing you can do, if you can, separate them away from the environmental media. So let's say you have plating waste that has chromium in it. Well, you pull the chromium out. There's chemistry to that. We can get into that if you want to, but I don't think that that's the point. Discharge the water, pull that chromium. If you can recycle it, that's great. And Heritage has over the years, um, we were able to recycle the the copper from um, etchants. We made TBCC, which ended up in uh, hog feed and chicken feed, which is really cool. But if you can't recycle it, that material ends up in a landfill. Now let's talk about those organics, those those, uh, longer chain things with carbon, carbon bonds. EPA has again and again decided one of the best ways to treat that is either burning it for energy recovery or incineration. So burning it for energy recovery means if if it's not too hazardous and we can blend it up, there are cement kilns in this country that can burn hazardous waste in lieu of burning natural gas or coal. And I think that's a wonderful usage of that material, we don't get new things out, and we can make cement. Remember, cement is the powdery stuff, concrete is your driveway. You need cement to make concrete, but concrete is not cement. Told by us. <laughs> That's the civil engineer coming out. The other thing, if you can't make a fuel from it, you end up incinerating it. And that incineration does break down the materials, and then from there, there is a residual, and we are required to test that residual to make sure that all those chemicals are destroyed that residual, which is a much smaller volume, goes to a landfill. Now, that may sound um, different than what people think should happen, but we discussed that ESG Decoded does tackle those hard questions and things you can't handle in a headline. Absolutely,
1: yes. No, I think that's a wonderful explanation for folks that are learning about this sector. So, to your point, right, so incineration is sometimes the only option, right? But, to come back to heritage environmental services sustainability uh, plan and you know we talk about decarbonization of the waste sector that means to burn less right so what is how do you kind of reconcile those two we have a need and a desire and regulation to protect the environment which might may, may mean incineration And then we have a desire to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from incineration. And so how do you as a company kind of think about that, uh, those competing interests?
2: I personally think about that a lot. (laughs) Uh, The day we're recording this, Earth Day is tomorrow, April 22nd. And we celebrate Earth Day as our birthday here at Heritage Environmental. Our company will be 52 years old tomorrow. Happy birthday. Thank you. So it's our Founders Day and Earth Day. We have been for 52 years doing our best for the environment. And by doing that, we're responding to spills like we've discussed, but we're also making sure that hazardous wastes and other industrial wastes are properly managed. And as I just discussed, the best way to manage some hazardous wastes are destroy them, and the best way to do that is to incinerate them. Now, remember, in general, Heritage Environmental Services didn't make these wastes. These wastes were made by our customers. So if you're going to put this in a carbon decarbonization language, This is someone else's scope three emissions, but it's our scope one emissions. The thing that doesn't really fit very well with the way the calculations work is we didn't make this material, but it's still our scope one emissions. So things that we have done. Number one, we started with our very first materiality assessment and started doing greenhouse gas calculations back in 2010. So we've been doing this for a very long time. I recently inherited the sustainability program, which I was very happy to take. And when I did, we sat down and it was right about the same time the group had made the investment in Climco. We reached out to some of uh, the folks at Climco and said, I think it's time to redo a materiality assessment and reevaluate our carbon calculations. The folks at Climco said, great. And we worked through a, a, a materiality assessment review that we were complimented that, you know, not everybody had a 10-year-old materiality assessment. So how cool was that? That's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> no, I want to talk a little bit about the materiality assessment. I love this. As we worked through the materiality assessment, you know, if you've been through one, you're making lists of different things and you're going to prioritize them. And we sent out a survey to everybody. And then we had in, uh, wasn't in person, but a workshop with people from all over the country with the company at different locations, people of different ages, people who were in the business, people who sit at a desk, people who get in tanks for a living, everybody. And that was a wonderful experience. Also, a leadership was interviewed, and then lastly, our customers and our vendors were interviewed, and we came up with a materiality assessment. But when we had the list of the different things we were ranking, we worked together to find the right terminology. So at Heritage, we have four core values, safe and compliant or not at all, integrity matters, freedom to learn and grow, and then we solve problems through innovation. So that's why I come to work every day. Right. Uh, (laughs) I love to solve problems. I think we should do what we say and say what we do. Personally, I started here as a 19 year old intern. I get to do really cool things now and I don't want to do something that's not safe or compliant. So those, I think they're great core values. So those core values weighed their way into our materiality assessment and they were, as my military daughter would say, high and right, right. In the materiality assessment, doing what we integrity matters. Those things were things that we all kind of landed on as well as some other things. So we did the Reality assessment. And then from there we worked into our carbon calculations and, and redid our carbon calculations. And so I want to we did talk about the incineration emissions, but there are other emissions that are company related that have nothing to do with incineration. We have over-the-road trucks, which we've invested in and have committed to buying electric vehicles to replace some of those trucks over the next five years. We have worked with another company that helps us track our energy usage at our individual facilities, the you know the amount of natural gas we use to get our buildings, things like that. So, in my opinion, here at Heritage, we should spend our energy on reducing our footprint on those things that are core to our business, and then we should engage with our customers to see about doing carbon offsets. For those scope one emissions from the incineration of the materials that require hazardous waste incineration.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think this is so interesting because you know I think some people from the outside say I don't know what that would be <laughs> at this point <laughs> for me, um, but they think well it's just if, just do your greenhouse gas accounting, set a target, no big deal, you know. <laughs> and there's there's not an uh, an understanding that. A, a lot of the methodologies are still under development. Methodologies for science-based targets, for example, a handful of those are not even released yet. You know, you've got different sectors waiting to see what that methodology will look like. You've got comment periods happening. So I think a, a lot of this is still very much in the stage of stakeholder engagement, To your to your point. Like, talking to customers, talking with industry associations and seeing, okay, well, what are you, you all doing about this? Because we haven't quite figured it out or we think we're on the right track. And so there's still a lot of stakeholder engagement happening in the value chain. And a lot of this is happening live, you know?
2: It is. And that's why I think it's so important for us all to be engaged in the conversation while we're still deciding how we're counting things especially on the waste industry side because everything we do is we call it reverse logistics everything we do is backwards of how manufacturing works so i think it's important that the waste industry gets out has our voice heard so that as we're counting things and thinking about things that we don't get poor grades on one of the sustainability or esg type grading systems just because our business is to take waste so right. i think we have to participate and as it's been explained to me by folks at climco Some of the calculations are still in that wild, wild west um, (laughs) kind of thought process. We're still figuring it out. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. So more broadly, right, decarbonization of the waste sector is, it's just one of those things that it's hard to abate, right? Some things are going to have to be incinerated. So to your point, you're thinking about carbon insets, carbon offsets. Do you want to kind of tell folks what you're thinking about right now?
2: I'd be glad to talk about carbon insets as far as I understand them right now. So Emily Damon, one of the folks that you know, has explained them to me and I think that this is the way we need to go in the waste industry. And that is, we are out there um, either destroying toxic chemicals or removing the toxic chemicals or even recycling the toxic chemicals. And uh, that is important for the environment, and so therefore, we would somehow back into a carbon inset that would kind of offset the carbon from doing that. So, give me let me give you another example. We are in the process of completing a facility with another partner where we will take electric arc furnace dust. So, when you recycle steel, steel has already been made once, it's got um, extra zinc on it. When you recycle it, there is a product called electric arc furnace dust, which is the byproduct. We have found a way to recover the zinc from the electric arc furnace dust. When we do this, it is a heated process to get it done. Now, this is awesome because we're not out mining more zinc and we're not having the the carbon footprint of the mining of the zinc. This is all great, but our company is going to take a carbon hit for doing the right thing and recovering this. And we don't get to count the offsets from the mining, from the zinc, but our customers do. See how that just doesn't seem to work out correctly. And we need to find a way to count this properly. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, that's great. I know you all have been working hard on this. And, you know, you're so active in industry associations. I, I feel confident it will get resolved at some point. <laughs> but you you bring up metals. And it kind of makes me think, take us back a little bit to the conversation about electric vehicles. You mentioned that you guys have a commitment there, but back to the hazardous waste piece, I think there's there's some things that folks aren't as aware of in terms of the the new risks of having a lot of EVs on the road. And I was wondering if you could comment on that from your perspective as a hazardous waste professional and just talk a little bit about what, what you guys are doing to, to raise education on that.
2: Certainly, so there's a couple of things to talk about. In general, right now, the large format batteries that are being placed in vehicles, whether they be your car or potentially an over-the-road vehicle or a bus, those are lithium-ion batteries. So they're not lithium batteries, they're lithium-ion batteries. That's the current technology that's been putting in. One important thing, if you take one thing away from this, if you have a lithium-ion battery that's having a thermal event, yes to water. If you have a lithium battery fire no water (laughs) so that is that it's important now how do you know which kind of battery you have if it's an if it's an electric vehicle it's a lithium ion battery but it in general so that part is important there have been there are some hazards associated with these large format batteries occasionally there might be a thermal event or someone may have a vehicular accident with these lithium batteries Now, we've been dealing with diesel-powered vehicles and gasoline-powered vehicles on our roads for 100 or more years. We know what to do there. Uh, Typically, at these points, uh, most of the time, the fire department can handle any kind of like a car fire or something that happens with the gasoline. Right now, if um, a, a truck, you know, they have those saddle tanks underneath the big diesel trucks. If there's a spill there, a lot of times the fire department will come in and stabilize the area. And then those private Emergency response companies that I talked to you about will come in later. They'll dig up the contaminated soil and then we'll dispose of it properly via landfill incineration, all the things we talked about before. That's been pretty much figured out in this country right now. Now you start thinking about what's going to happen in the off chance that a large format battery has an issue. So we've been spending a lot of time thinking about what to do. And i will tell you that the fire department will if there's a thermal event they're going to come out and they're going to respond but remember we talked about this earlier they're first responders they want to come out they want to do their business they don't want to stay there forever they need to get back to the firehouse for the next incident but now you have that battery it may be compromised in some way and it probably needs proper packaging and some additional attention it might be move from the vehicle. That's not the firefighter's jobs. That's the private sector emergency response companies' jobs, usually hired by the responsible party, whether that be the owner of the vehicle or the owner of the company who made the vehicle, depending upon the type of the incident. So I have every faith that the emergency response community can do this, but I do believe, and I have been working on this on to continue to work with my fellow emergency responders, we need to get some more training out there for the emergency responders so that they know what to do should there be an incident. So once again, I I understand that we're moving to this more electric vehicle society and that is great for decarbonization, but there are hazards that come with it. Nothing is free, right? No such thing as a free lunch. So we need to work on moving our emergency response companies to understand how they're responding.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, there's a lot of trade-offs, and um, we have to go eyes wide open into into this new world we're creating, and make sure that we're investing in the right systems, technologies, processes, and people to to uh, ha- manage it properly. So that it's a really interesting topic that I haven't heard a lot about. So thank you for sharing that. Um, Let's take it back to the development of Heritage Environmental Services' own sustainability strategy. So I know you have really led that um, at your company, and we'd love to hear from you about what that's looked like, any lessons learned you have. So imagine your peers are listening to the podcast. What would you like them to know about their own sustainability journeys from yours? Absolutely. So
2: first, yes, I I. I do lead our sustainability efforts, but I couldn't do it at all without Joanne Jones, who was the, pers- the very first person who stood up and said, we should do this. And so she has been at the forefront of our sustainability efforts for the past 10 years. He continues to be our sustainability leader. And another shout out to Chris Tracy, who has, he's a recent uh, graduate. He's joined us and he is learning all about the sustainability ropes. So things that we have learned in this 10 or 11 year journey that we have. Uh, one. It is still kind of the Wild West out there, and the way you do calculations has changed over time. We can get closer and better with calculations as time goes on. For instance, in the past, when we sent waste to uh, municipal or industrial landfills, we would use a calculator and say we spent this much money, and then it said, okay, that equates to this kind of a carbon footprint this year we actually reached out to several of our partners who own those landfills and we said look at the waste streams that we sent you and they got very specific with our waste stream types and the actual landfills where they went possibly they had some methane recovery and things and they said this is your carbon footprint much more closely calculated than a lookup table so so that's one lesson is just because you calculated it one way, last year doesn't mean that you can't do a better job this year. But a couple other things. This is not a one person job. When we went to ClimCO and got a proposal for this new work, we, we shared that with our leadership team and leadership team decided that this is what we wanted to do as a group. So yes, we have a few people here at Heritage that that's their full-time job. Uh, actually, one person who's mostly in her full-time job, but she does a lot of S part of the ESG too, so that's not all she's doing is calculations. But it takes time from our accounting staff. It takes time from our compliance staff. It takes time from people all over the country to just code things properly in accounting so that we have ideas where things are. And, and it, we send emails out every year to all of our location managers. Did you put in new blinds? Did you replace your light bulbs? What other things did you do? So in order to get this carbon calculation completely accurate as possible, it takes a lot of people's effort. So I don't think it's something that one person sitting in an office by him or herself can actually do. It does take a team. And then I believe, We did it by ourselves for 10 years, and then we partnered with this last year. I believe that we were able to raise our game significantly by working with a consultant. And there's things that someone who is doing this all day long for multiple people can know that a person doing it by themselves maybe can't know. For example, conventions. And one of the things that I learned, uh, and we do acquisitions from time to time, is when you do an acquisition, you do a five-year look back. And then um, when you're doing year over year, you've got to go back, add back that uh, acquisition and then see how you're doing. So the things that we've learned is when you're doing acquisitions, maybe you look to see if they've done carbon calculations or if you can get the data to figure out what that's going to be. Also, you want to do it right the first time, because if you miss carbon, you're doing your carbon accounting, you miss it and you have these great goals to reduce your carbon footprint. (laughs) finding carbon that you didn't count last year doesn't help you get to your goals. So you I think and my advice that I give to people who are just starting their journey is make sure that your baseline calculation is as accurate as you could possibly make it. It's going to take plenty of um, sweat equity on your side and very potentially someone who's a specialist on the other side.
1: Yeah, no those are those are great tips and it's definitely something we see every day. You know, I get a lot of calls like, "Hey, we're thinking of hiring a you know, <clears throat> VP of sustainability or whoever to kind of do all of this and also look at the job description. It's like they want someone that knows how to do greenhouse gas accounting and target setting and uh, write a sustainability report and know diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, and compliance policy. Like, it's just insane what folks are putting in these job descriptions. And it's it's a multidisciplinary set of topics, right? E, S, and G. And within that, there's lots of different topics uh, within each one. So there's no way there's a person who's really can do literally all the things that are being asked of in these jobs. So to your point, I mean, I mean, in my mind, it's ideal to eventually have the, your, the organization able to manage it on their own. Right. That's we why we do training. That's why we work hand in hand and make sure our clients are involved to the extent they can be in the process. So there's a learning and happening, but you know, all of this is, all of this is multidisciplinary. And I, I I appreciate you, you saying that as, you know, as a consultant, I appreciate you saying that because it does make us feel like, Oh good. We're, we are doing something right
2: (laughs) Um, to help our clients. So. I'm still really from that job description, because think about it. If you're doing calculations, it's you crazy. need to be a, a math person. Yes. And if you're setting targets, um, and, and we're getting ready to reevaluate our environmental targets here at Heritage because with meaningful KPIs, but in order to do that, I feel like we have to involve the operational leadership to figure out what makes sense for them. Well, that's a team building effort, not necessarily a math effort, right? And then you're talking about inclusion. That's just a whole nother set of understanding things. I'm not sure that there's a person in the world that could do all of those skills well. I mean, we, we try to be as well-rounded as we can, but that's a lot of different skills you're asking one person to to have to bring to the table. It's a,
1: totally, totally. And I mean, sometimes that's just, you know, what, whoever wrote the job description is, you know, probably not a subject matter expert They're Maybe they sit in HR and they've just been handed this thing and they're like, well, it sounds, sounds like this is all the things you're asking for. But, um, you know, having been in the space, a lot of it, a lot of the asks of individuals aren't realistic. And I think to your point, whether you're working internally only or with an external consultant, it's definitely not a one-person job.
2: You know, it puts me to mind to, in the original days of the hazardous waste world back in the 80s, um, sometimes it was HR. I've seen HR people get saddled with the hazardous waste work. I've seen the safety person get saddled with it, with the, uh, the hazardous waste work. Sometimes they put it just anywhere they could. I think we're at the beginning of this ESG efforts and we're starting as a society to learn who gets that seat, and that maybe it's its own seat, and maybe we're going to be be bringing more folks out of college prepared to take seats like that, which you know there weren't waste people 20 years ago. Now there are waste people. Maybe we can have some ESG people.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that, and that's happening. You know, a lot of there's some great programs um, that are more management focused, sort of less esoteric, and more about how you actually manage this thing um, as a company. So I think yeah, it's it's all evolving constantly of course but I I I think as a the the key message that we would like our listeners to hear is don't do this on your own internally like don't expect one person to handle the whole thing internally and because it's because it's a lot it's a lot of different things it is yeah I agree yeah well Angie, it's been so wonderful to have you on, and despite the power outage that knocked us out partially <laughs> through this recording, for no reason apparent whatsoever, it's sunny in Houston today, so I don't know why. Um, but I appreciate your patience, and I'm so so glad that we we got to talk about all these fascinating topics. As always listeners please feel free to give us feedback respond to us on social media and let us know if you have any questions or if you think of other deep dive episodes that you'd like Uh, thank you so much for listening and Angie thank you for being here
2: thank you for having me it's been a wonderful afternoon have a great rest of your day
0: you too thank you for listening to ESG Decoded Subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume yours and follow ESG Decoded and Co. across social media platforms. Until our next episode, take what you learned today to drive long-term value for your organization by doing good for people and the planet.